is the, uh, this, this you know, past Wednesday, we, we gathered here in the evening uh, for Ash Wednesday service. Uh, it's a unique service. In some ways, it's one of those, you know, why, why would I on an evening in the darkness come over here and, and be sad and think about uh, some of those things as we begin our season of Lent? But it's a, it's a good thing in the rhythm of, of the Christian life. And there's a reason that the liturgical calendar kind of has these built-in things, right? When we look at Christmas, we have Advent. And when we look at Easter, we have this Lenten season that Ash Wednesday kicks off, that it starts. And one of the things we do when we look at Ash Wednesday, and really Lent as a whole, but specifically Ash Wednesday, is we use it as a time to kind of deeply examine and remind ourselves of our own kind of sin and mortality, right? The whole idea of you are from dust and you will go and return to dust. Like your bodies came out of the ground and they'll go back to the ground when, when you're done. You live, you die kind of, kind of thing. And so one of the things that does is it causes us to reflect on life and what's important in it and all those kinds of things. The more we can reflect and be reminded of our own mortality, the more likely we are to take some steps in life that move us towards those things which are truly important and significant, right? And so we do that. And, and today's passage that we're going to look at, um, it, it's a rough passage, and it kind of helps us gauge with this idea of mortality. So I don't actually think that for us, when we think about our own sin, right? if you think about the sin in your life, how many of you, and don't raise your hand, this isn't one of those like confess times, but how many of you would consider the average day in your life to be full of this rampant, disgusting, blatant, forget-you-God sin, right? Any of you wake up this morning and decide, I just don't really want to care about anything that God says. I'm going to do everything my own way. Um, I might murder some people because that just sounds fun, right? No, no one, when we think about our own sin, and the mess that we, that we create in our own hearts, most of it is not this blatant kind of sin as, as Christians, at least, right? It's not that we are all these wicked-looking people that do horrendous things each and every day, right? At least for me, it's not. As I, as I look at Ash Wednesday and Lent and I reflect on my own sin, one of the things that came to light over the past few days for me is that most of our sin, so to speak, is very subtle, Right? It's not blatant. It's subtle. It's gradual. It's slow moving. It's developing. It's these little kind of things in our lives that over time brew and fester. Right? There's ways in which we, we fall short of the glory of God. And most of them aren't these, I'm doing active, terrible things because I just want to. It's far more a, you know, it started with this little thing. Most sin is slow, subtle compromise over the course of time. There's a great book written by a guy named Jerry Bridges. It's it's pretty old at this point. It's probably more than 10 years, I would guess, 10, 15 years. Um, It's called Respectable Sins. And the whole argument that he makes is most of the sins in our lives are actually what we would consider to be respectable sins. And that means that just... There's things that like society is kind of fine with, like they wouldn't consider you a bad person for, right? But it's the subtle ways in which we kind of rebel against what God has for us. Right? And so today, as we look at this really kind of, I don't know, I wouldn't say it's a tough passage, it's a harsh passage. I wouldn't say it's necessarily tough. But when we look at this idea of God destroying Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19, 
One of the things that we need to understand is that in this story, you're going to see the subtlety of sin work itself out in the life of a specific individual. And I think one of the things that'll help us to, my hope is that it, it helps us to teach us about our own heart and the way that sin slowly, not quickly, not blatantly, but subtly, sneakily, disengages us from God and what he has for us. And so that's, as you read this passage, I, I, there's some harsh stuff, and we'll, we'll look at the harsh stuff, and we'll explain how, how, and how some of it came about, and we'll, we'll dig into some of the real kind of ugly parts of this passage. But I, I don't want us to so much focus on, on the destruction of the city of Gomorrah, or even so much on the terrible sin inside of the city of Gomorrah. I want us to focus on one guy and his progression, and that guy is Lot. Right? Lot is the nephew of Abraham, and most of the story in Genesis 19 isn't so much focused on Gomorrah or Sodom or even Zor, the city that's next to it, but it's focused on Lot. So this morning I would invite us to stand and look at this Genesis 19. We're going to look at verses 1 through 29. And it's a little lengthy, but bear with me. Hear the word of the Lord. I'm in Matthew. Why am I in Matthew? I was like, this is not the passage that's on your screen by any stretch. In my tired brain, I was in Matthew for Ash Wednesday, and I just kind of lingered there. There we go, Genesis 19, the two angels. That looks much more like it. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening. And Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth. And said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. And they said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. And Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. And then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. <laughs> the men said to Lot, have you, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. All right, I'm getting ahead of myself. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. I am really, there you go. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, 
Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. And so the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. As they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me a great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to them, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zor. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor, and the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities, and all the valley, and all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham, and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow, when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. It's the word of the Lord. Have a seat. Now that we're all happy and joyful uh, with this beautiful passage that would make a great movie, right? There's a lot happening in, in this passage. Um, and, and a lot of times when you hear this passage preached, uh, it's a very like a fire and brimstone kind of message. And I want to I stop and just, I'm not sure that that's where, where we need to go with that this morning. But I want to make one disclaimer real quick. Um, in, in this passage... When, when the men, when it talks about the men wanting to know the guys in there, that, that is a salt type of language, right? There's, there's a filth happening within that, that place, that city. And so I, I want to acknowledge, number one, that Scripture is never okay with that kind of stuff, right? Um, you'll see in a little bit that Lot is, is rescued as a, as a righteous person, but the righteousness that we're talking about with Lot is, is relevant to the city of Sodom. Right? We're not hailing Lot as a hero here. The guy offers his daughters. Right? And we'll dig into the, the, the nuance of that in just a little bit. But, but we need to understand that Scripture condemns this kind of behavior. It's part of why the city of Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed, because the Lord won't have that kind of stuff. Right? It's not okay, and we need to say that from the outset. Scripture and God unequivocally condemn any of this kind of abusive behavior, and it's given here simply just to demonstrate how far these cities had fallen away, that literally every person, every man in that city, young and old, would gather around the house for the sake of abusing these visitors. It's a mess, right? So I just want to get that out of the way. I don't want to have any kind of insinuation here that Scripture is okay with any of the things that are happening here or that God would be. He condemns it in the strongest terms, right? And so that being said, this passage requires a lot of context, right? How did Lot get there? What is he doing there? Why is he at the gates? Why is he in Sodom? Wasn't he the nephew traveling with Abraham and all these kinds of things? So let's do a brief overview, right? Lot is Abraham's nephew, and Lot, when they left Haran, 
went with Abraham to travel to the land that God would lead him to, right? And so in, in Genesis 12 that we covered last week, we have Lot and Abraham traveling together as, as a family, right? They've, they're amassing more and more wealth as they go along. And so by the time we get to Genesis 13, both Lot and Abraham had grown exceedingly wealthy. And one of the things that started to happen is the, the people, the shepherds of Lot and the shepherds and the people of Abraham began to quarrel about some things. I don't know if it was a land dispute or whatever, but they were quarreling. And so Abraham and Lot in Genesis 13 separate and go their own ways. And not out of any kind of feud amongst themselves, they actually do it to preserve the peace. They look, look, our households are too big to travel together in unity. There's the strife happening between them and, and, and I don't know, fights over land or whatever. Let's, let's split and go our own ways. And as a matter of fact, Abraham tells Lot, you pick where you want to go, and then I'll go in the opposite way. And so Lot looks around, and he sees this area, the Jordan Valley. Uh, and if you, if you ever have the opportunity to go there or see photos of there, the Jordan Valley is beautiful. Right? It's this lush land. And so, so Lot sees it and thinks, That's, uh, that looks pretty cushy. I want to go there. He doesn't think, where does the Lord want me to go? He doesn't think, what, what, what's my calling here? He doesn't think, what will be more beneficial for the plan? Maybe we go our own ways, but we move towards the same direction and, and we follow the call of God. Lot chooses the cushy life in the Jordan Valley for him and his people. And so Abraham says, great, I'll go the opposite and travels to what we think of as Canaan and the, the area that surrounds it. Right? And so in Genesis 13, they split. And one of the things we see there is the first small compromise of Lot. It's subtle. It's tiny. But instead of following the Lord and asking what his will is for his life, he picks the better, cushy, wealthy, rich place to go put down roots. And he stays there. And that valley happens to contain the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and Zor. I always feel really bad for the people in Zor, Ohio. They're going to get bad rap after this. Right? Not related. I'm sure it's a wonderful city. I've driven through it once or twice. Right. So he settles there, and what we see in this passage is he doesn't go into the cities. He doesn't go into the valley and find Sodom and go there and say, I'm going to buy a house in Sodom. He, he sees Sodom for what it is, this filthy place of people that have zero morals who are doing awful, wicked things. And so he decides to live outside the city as far as he can. Right? He moves into the hill country that surrounds the cities, but he doesn't take part in it. So he's in the valley, but he's not in the city. That's how things start. And so he moves to the hill country and is these far outskirts. But what happens is it doesn't stay that way for long. Right? Because as we move into Genesis 14, 15, 16, 17, and we see things like Abraham rescuing Lot from some of the kings in that area, what becomes apparent is pretty quickly after moving into the valley... Lot moves into the city of Sodom right? as an outsider. He's just a resident. Right? I'm not taking part in any of the things that are happening here in any way. I'm just, I'm just living amongst these people. I'm a clean, righteous man living amongst all this filth. How terrible are they, but I'm still doing okay. I can be in the midst of this and not compromise who I am. Maybe I'll even be a light to the people. Right? But he lives within the city. And so in chapter 18, we see the beginning of God's judgment on those cities. God comes to Abraham along with two angels, and he starts to tell Abraham of his plan 
to, to look into these cities and to potentially destroy them. And, and Genesis 18 is Abraham praying for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's begging the Lord to stop. What he's essentially saying is, hey, God, there's probably some righteous people there. Like, are, are you really, are you going to throw the baby out with the bathwater by destroying them? Like, what, what, there's probably like 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom. And so God says, great, if, you can, if I find 50 people, I'll spare the city. So Abraham goes, wait a minute, you're pretty confident about that. Um, what if like, what if it's like not 50, but a couple less, right? And so this, this Genesis 18 is a beautiful chapter because God is like negotiating with Abraham, but he's not actually negotiating with Abraham. He's, he's God. He knows what's happening, right? But he's playing along with Abraham's request. He says, sure, you know, 40, 30, whatever. And at the very end of Genesis 18, Abraham says, well, what about like, what about like 10? And God goes, you know what, Abraham? If I find 10 righteous people, I'll spare the city. Because God knows he won't, all right? But Abraham, satisfied, goes, okay. And the, the two angels that were with the Lord set out. And what we find is that the people that show up at the gate and greet Lot are the two angels in, in human form. He doesn't know it, but they do. Right? And so they, Genesis 19 that we just read opens with those angels coming into the city. And from the very first verse, what do we learn when they get there? Lot is waiting, hanging out at the gate of the city. Why is that significant? Because the gate of the city was the hub of all the activity. It was like the court, the place where everything happened, where all the, the trading and deciding and leadership and everything happened. Those men who were hanging out at the gate were the people that were the prominent leaders of Sodom. And so from Genesis 12, 13, where he goes into the valley but won't have anything to do with the city, through 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, where we start to see him move into the city, we are now at a point where when the angels show up at the gate, not only is Lot firmly planted in the city, but he's one of the key players in that place. He's got influence and prominence. Right? That's a big change from where we found him in the valley. Kind of among the filth, but not part of the filth. Right? Again, slow compromise. Lot didn't say, I'm going to go live with those awful people and become one of them. He said, it's just, it's just man, it's good farmland. Like, it's lush, it's, it's beautiful, it's good for food. I can, I can handle them. All right. Well, then, well, I can live in the city. It's more convenient. I don't have to go far to get the stuff that I need. I can be among them, but not of, but not of them, All right? And then eventually we start to see that he is now one of the prominent people in that city itself. He's built himself a name. He's built himself more wealth. He's built himself comfort for himself and his family. And so the angels come. They show up at the door. Right? He's the first to offer them shelter. It's, it's a custom that you even see in, in the Middle East in some places today when a traveler comes in, like shelter and, and hospitality is something that is like demanded, right? And so they, he, he brings them into his place. He says, look, stay with me, have food with me, come stay in my house. And they say, no, we'll just stay in, in the court. We'll stay in the, in, the, in the area, in the center of town. You know, we'll sleep under the stars. And Lot insists that they come stay with him. And part of why is because he knows just how filthy the city is. 
He knows that there's no way two travelers like that survive outside at night in that city without losing their lives. So he insists, look, you, you don't know what it's like here. Like you, you need to come and stay with me. And so they agree, and they come and they stay with Lot. And as the night falls, the men of the city begin to bang on Lot's door. They want to have their way with those two guys. And yeah, it's as messed up as it sounds. Right? And what's even more messed up is that Lot comes out to greet them. He says, guys, friends, what are you doing? Don't be so wicked. Right? How about this? Have my daughters instead. Now, pause. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sound for a moment like I'm defending Lot the slightest bit, but I'm not, I promise you. I'm just giving a caveat. One of the things that Lot was doing here, it wasn't so much offering his daughters up, but making a gamble, right, for the sake of the whole household's safety. Those two daughters were betrothed to men of Sodom. It t- tells us that they were betrothed to two men that were, that were Sodomites. And I don't mean that in the derogatory sense, I just mean that in that they were men that were residents of Sodom. Right? And so they're betrothed, and so one of the things that happens is there's, there's laws that guide and guard. If, if a woman is betrothed to a man in the city, you aren't to mess with her. Right? And so what Lot is doing is he's not so much just saying, here's here, have my daughters. He, he's saying, look, I'm going to gamble on the fact that they're, gonna, they're not going to mess with these two. If I offer them instead, they'll be safe. Now, does he know that they'll be safe? No. It's still a terrible thing that he's doing. But he's actually gambling that everybody ends up being safe in the end, right? Equally wrong. You shouldn't gamble with your daughters, right? But just so we understand, it's, it's really terrible. It's just ever so slightly less terrible than you first might think it is, right? Not to excuse him at all, but just so we understand that. And so he offers his, his daughters instead, and they obviously decline, uh, and they try to come in and break the door down, but the angels obviously have a certain level of, of authority and power, and so they get Lot back inside. <clears throat> they strike everybody blind. They're not able to, to get a hold of them. But one of the things that becomes real apparent is outside of Lot himself, there is not a single remotely righteous man to be found. Right? And Lot himself, his righteousness is at best really questionable. He's righteous in comparison to the city, not in a sense of actually being right or righteous. Right? And in the end, as we understand with sin, none of us are righteous. Right? So it's all relative. Right? And so after that night in verse 15, the angels tell Lot to get out of the city. He says, do you have any family or relatives in the city? Please go find them. Tell them you need to get out. Tomorrow we're gonna, the Lord's going to take this place down. You need to leave. And what it tells us is in the morning when they reminded him of this, that they, instead of leaving, Lot lingers. He lingers. Oh my gosh. Like the, the Lord sends angels to your house to tell you, tomorrow everything here is getting destroyed in fire. You need to get out. And in the morning, like imagine what you would do, right? You would, you would be like packed up that night. You'd be heading out at two in the morning. You wouldn't wait. You wouldn't sleep in that day. Right? But it says that Lot lingers in his home. He's in no rush to leave behind all of the stuff that he has and all of the connections and influence and power that he has. Right? And so the angels actually, it says that they literally drag him. They grab him and, and his family and they, they get them out by force. Right? And we don't know if they drag them out physically or if there's some kind of miracle where they just go, you know, you're out. However they do it, they get him against his immediate will and action out of the city 
And so he starts to say, like, you need to go to the hill country. Just get up the hill. Get out of here. The city's going to get crushed. You need to leave. It's not safe. Take your family with you. And by the way, do not look back, whatever you do. This place is done. God's judged it. It's going to end. Everyone's going to die. You don't look back at what's in the past. You just go forward and get out in the hill country. And what does he do? He says, yeah, well, thank you. You know, I'm, I'm so glad that the Lord has shown me favor. Um, but I can't go into the, into the hills. Um, I, I, yeah, I, might, I, might be, I might be destroyed. I might, I might, that's, not, that's not a good place. And what he's saying is, look, there's no power, influence, or comfort out there. Can, can I, there's this little city, Zor. Can I, can I go there instead? And why does he want to go there? He's known there. He still retains some level of, of influence, of power, of, of prestige going into that place and creature comforts of the city. He's so focused on his own comfort that he can't go into the hills. He wants to go into the city. So even as the Lord is saving him, he's like, listen, um, like that, it's, my, it's nicer over there. Do you think maybe? And what's really shocking is the Lord allows him to go. He says, you know what? Go. That's fine. And so he goes there. And as they're traveling, they, they, they arrive and they, they, the city starts to be destroyed. The Lord starts to rain sulfur and fire on it. And his wife looks back when they're not supposed to. And so the, the moment she looks back, it says that she's turned into a pillar of salt. Right? And she dies. And so then Lot arrives in Zor. And that's where the passage ends with Abraham reflecting and seeing off in the distance the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? And the Lord tells him, look, I've spared a lot, um, but I've judged this, this city. Right? After Sodom and Gomorrah happens, um, we see the progression of Lot go from, from bad to worse. Um, he, he's really just alone with himself and his two daughters and as they are there, one of the things that happens is the daughters get real worried about the family line. And so in a drunken stupor, when Lot is hammered, they, one by one, they each go into the tent and then they sleep with their dad to become pregnant so that they can continue the family line. That's really healthy family behavior happening here, right? And so one of the things we see is both of his daughters become pregnant and they both give birth to a son. The first uh, born calls her son Moab and the second born calls her son Ben-Ami. And out of those two men, what we see develop are the tribes of Moab and the tribes of the Ammonites. Right? And if you keep reading through scripture, one of the things you'll see is God calls the Israelites out of Egypt and they start to have struggles with all these various tribes in the Old Testament. Two of those tribes are the Moabites and the Ammonites. They, keep, they come back. They're kind of a pesky, right? There's some pain points there. And so the line of Lot ends in despair and sadness and strife and in a way that goes against the, the Israelite people. Right? And that's the end of Lot. What a beautiful, loving, caring story that we have. Now, there's two ways in which we learn from a passage like this, this horrendous and horrible. The first is this. We have to look at the destruction of the cities apart from Lot from a 30,000-foot view, and we need to understand something. It, it, it seems that this is a harsh judgment passage, right? But, but as Christians, one of the things we have to understand is it's actually a gracious, loving passage. Right? The, the Lord cares about the well-being and the holiness of his creation that he made. He cares about you. He cares about me. Right? 
And so when, when something gets so wicked and so destructive to this beautiful world that he's created, the Lord is not above taking it out. Right? He'll deal with the things that cause trouble in this world. And, and one of the things that we will see is there comes a day where he will deal with the things that are causing trouble in our world today. Part of why we as Christians are able to love our enemies is because we serve a God that we can trust to take care of them. Right? The Lord will deal with every evil person in this world. And he will deal with them one way or another. He will either A, destroy them in judgment, or B, he will call them unto himself and he will reconcile them the way you were reconciled. Right? One way or another, every evil and every wicked little inkling inside of this creation will be dealt with by God someday. And you'll be in eternity with people that have been good people overall, and you'll be in eternity with people that have been wicked people, but the Lord has redeemed and called unto himself. They have given their faith and hope and trust in Christ. And just like the criminal hanging next to Jesus on the cross, they've been made clean in that day or with him in paradise, or will be judged if they don't follow the Lord. And so from a 30,000-foot from a view, this isn't a passage that's ugly and full of fire brimstone, although it is actually full of fire and brimstone, which is where we get that saying from. It's a passage of grace because the Lord loves his creation so much, he will clean it up. Right? And he does that within our own hearts. The Lord will put to death things in your heart that are destroying you as you follow him. Right? Sometimes we'll do it in harsh ways. There might be times where the Lord deals with you in a way that you go, man, this is hard, this is difficult, this is harsh. Why are you so mean to me? And, he, and what he wants to say to you is, look, you don't see it now, but I'm doing something. There's a part of you that needs to die for you to emerge as, as what I want you to be. And, and for that to happen, I've got to kill this part off, and in the moment, it's going to hurt. But guess what? I'm actually cleaning you up, not destroying you. Right? The Lord does it with his creation, through instances like Sodom or Gomorrah or even the Noah account that we read, and he does it in our own hearts. Right? The second thing that we get out of this passage is by looking at the, the, the life of Lot, we start to see that it's so important to understand Lot did not start out as a wicked guy. Lot was a righteous man after God's heart. Him and Abraham were traveling together, going where God wanted them to go. What got Lot from there to offering his daughters up was a whole long year's series of small, ever-increasing compromises. Right? I can mix in with this respectable sin, but not fall utterly into wickedness. Right? One of the the things that I always baffled me is whenever you see the news that there was like some, you know, murder or something happened or, you know, they always, the interview, they find like the strangest people to put on the news. Like, I was his neighbor for 10 years, right? But one of the things you always see is, yeah, I never thought that, you know, Earl was capable of. That's almost always the universal story, right? No one ever goes on the news, but, well, you know, you were his neighbor. Tell us about, oh, yeah. 15 years ago he moved in. I knew he was going to murder people then. And then he did. I've been telling them. You don't see that. No, it's always the shock, right? The reality is that each one of us, because of sin that stains us, are capable of great evil in our hearts. Right? You're not as far away from great wickedness as you think you are. You're a couple bad decisions or circumstances that happen to you away from making some decisions and actions that are grave, 
grievous, terrible sin. Our hearts are always in danger of that. And so I want to I encourage us, where are you slowly compromising and allowing comfort of this world to fester rather than the Lord's way in our lives? Right? For me, the most tragic moment in all of this whole account is Lot's wife turning to, to a pillar of salt. Because after the rescue, she, she's lived in the city. She's seen these horrendous things happen over and over and over again in the place that she lives and calls home. The Lord rescues her and her family out of it. And as they're walking away and the city's condemned, she looks back with the sense of, 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 of missing and desire. She wants to be back there. And if we look at scripture, we see that all over the place. There's all these little instances where the Lord, the Lord saves people, but they keep turning back. Right? The Israelites are saved out of Egypt. They're carried through the sea in a miraculous way. And the first morning when they get up, what do they do? They grumble about food. They say, oh, that we would be back in Egypt. At least there the food was tasty. We had all we had to eat. Forget the fact that we were abused, enslaved, made to work until we died. Had our, had our, our children killed when they were born. We forgot about all of that, but the food was delicious. And we wish we were back there. Right? Scripture is full of it. And, and, and us, one of the things we have to understand in our hearts is we have this draw to the comforts of this world that make empty promises to us that it cannot keep. And sin never ensnares us slowly or quickly. Right? Satan doesn't come to you and say, hey, um, I'm going to need you to have that affair right now. So if you could just go do that. No. Right? It's a gradual He'll introduce some strife in your marriage, some pain points. Right? And then he'll interject somebody in your life that seems to have none of those pain points. And then you become emotionally attached. And the next thing you know is you know, two years later. Right? Sin festers slowly and creepily into our lives. And it happens because we slowly allow the world to compromise. To come into our lives. To fill it in ways that only Christ should fill. And God wants to, to, to tell you this morning, he's having none of that. Right? He's in the business of cleaning you up. He's in the business of making you new and making you whole. And he's in the business of making promises that he keeps, not promises that are empty and fleeting. And he's in the business of making you the best person that you can possibly be, that he has called you and created you to be from the very beginning He's in the business of redeeming you. And sometimes that redemption is just ever so slightly painful. But in the end, man, it's good. Where are we compromising? What are the small, subtle ways that you've allowed the world to have a foothold where it shouldn't? My prayer would be that over the next week or so, the Lord would start to point those things out to you. That he would nudge you in some directions and say, look, this, this part, yeah. I don't, you don't belong to me in this, right? Like, why, why are you going against me here? You need to get, you need to get on my ship. Right? And that we would have the courage and the conviction and the power through the Holy Spirit to do that. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for a hard truth that, that sets us free. And that's what this is, Lord. It's a hard truth that sets us free that allows us to be shaped into the people you want us to be. Lord, you painstakingly tried to pull Lot out of a world that he slowly compromised himself into. And Lord, you're, you're making that same pull to us today. You're calling us out of a place that's not our home. And so we pray that you would point us in the right direction. 
that you would guide us by your Spirit, that you would enable us to follow you the way we're supposed to, even though that's hard, love. Lord, we, we don't pretend to have the answers. We don't pretend to know every way we're supposed to go or everything we're supposed to do. But Lord, we trust that you will guide us. And so we ask that this week you point to our hearts and you show us the things that need to change. Not so that you'll love us more, but you already promise us you love us, but so that we might be shaped after your own heart. That we one day might be with you in paradise where all this stuff goes away. We love you and praise you. And all his people said, Amen. Amen.